This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which I, or listeners, will select, sort of at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 92nd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are wrapping up the mini-series we started last, last episode. It's The Weird, number 3 and 4, from DC Comics, cover dated June and July 1988. But first, a little bit of feedback. We start off with a shout-out and a welcome back to Isaac Miner, who let his schooling get in the way of podcast listening, which, I guess technically speaking, given my job and all that, I can't get too upset with. He reported recently listening to the Phantom Stranger episodes from a while back. Now, get back to your research papers, Isaac. And on the Enemy Ace issue from a few episodes back, Gord Tolton replied with some very, very bad puns. Thank you, Gord. Mike, from the Golden Age Comics podcast, said that he really liked Enemy Ace's original run and was looking forward to listening to that episode. Mark Sweeney, from I'm the Gun, mentioned that it was a killer episode. I know that Enemy Ace is no balloon buster, but coming from Mark, that's high praise. Sky-high praise. Mark also did point out my fears regarding the repetitive nature of Von Hammer's adventures are founded, and that reading through the archives or showcase can seem a bit redundant. But I agree with you that the high quality of each story, just about every single one written by Kaniger, is so high that taken in easily digested eight-page installments, which is how Ace stories were published for a good amount of their history, these remain a treat, even after Joe Kubert left the feature. There's no way the quality would dip with the likes of Frank Thorne, John Severin, and Dan Spiegel taking on the art chores. Entertaining listen, as always, Alan. Great job. On last issue, the start of The Weird. Supergirls, best friend on the internet. Dr. Ange wrote in. Thanks for covering this. I have to say, but I found this to be the muddiest of Bernie Wrightson's work. It's still beautiful, but not as polished as his work on Swamp Thing. Perhaps that's Dan Green's inks. The Weird's costume is strange, but oddly grabbing. And I do like that this was a threat that could stand up to Superman. And of course, he ends with a Supergirl comment. Lastly, the Zorro Lats were name-dropped on the Supergirl show last season. Incredible! Is it really incredible, Ange? Or is it just weird? I also heard from that most gentlemanly gentleman from Edinburgh, Sir Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. He said that it was a nice episode, but admitted that he avoided the weird at the time, mostly for grammatical reasons. I hate, hate, hate adjectives as nouns. It shouldn't be the weird, it's the weird something. 
and don't get me started on the Ultimates. He did confess to eventually reading the first issue of The Weird, or as he called it, The OK. And I heard from Laurel, who got a shout-out in that episode, about the voting that resulted in us covering The Weird. Sorry to disappoint you on Moon Knight. Next time, maybe you can cheat and only give us issues from his series to vote on. Yep, that might be the only way for the dude to get some votes. Or some respect. Clinton Robison also offered his apologies for his maltreatment of Moon Knight. Good to know I have a few especially good-hearted listeners. And thanks to everyone who retweeted or shared the social media posts for recent episodes, including Ed Moore from Teal Productions, the Sutherlands from the RAD Network, Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, and Clinton Robison from the blog and podcast, Coffee and Comics, the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, I was Joe Crawford, Parents from Windsor, Ontario, Laurel, Justice's First Dawn, the new Transform and Roll Out podcast and blog, and Noel Thingval from the brand new Tarzan-themed podcast, Greystoked, which may be the best name ever for a podcast. Thanks for all the support, kids. But enough of that. It's time to get weird. And I think we'll handle these issues the same way we did last time, recapping both together here and then discussing them together later. Each of these two issues had cover prices of $1.50, meaning I acquired them at a very satisfying 83% markdown. The cover of issue three by Bernie Wrightson shows the weird and the Jason going head-to-head, up close and personal, face-to-face. We see more of the Jason's face in its half-human, half-green, crystalline form. And one nice thing about the cover, no speech bubbles or narrative boxes or hype. It's a change of pace. It really sets the book apart from others of the era. The story, Confrontation, was written by the character's creator, Jim Starlin, with art by the aforementioned Bernie Wrightson and Dan Green. We start with Billy Langley. He's 10 years old, and he has a secret. And he's sharing it with his dog. It's true. Dad's not dead. Well, he, he was dead, but he, he's not really dead so much anymore. I guess this sounds awfully confusing. Billy then recaps the basics of the first two issues, how there is a war of interdimensional importance occurring. A Zaralot came to Earth, commandeering the body of Billy's father, taking the identity of the weird. He is here to take on the agent of the evil Macrolots, Jason Morgan, otherwise known as the Jason. As Billy wonders how his dad is doing, we move several miles away to the Jason's apartment, where they have begun their battle. Die, you infernal Zaralot nuisance! But the weird has altered his body to handle anything the Jason can throw at him. The Jason throws up a cubicle force shield to help keep the Justice League out, having sensed their powerful forces approaching. The force shield extends beyond the apartment somehow, because the entire top 
of the skyscraper explodes. The leaguers rescue the people falling from the building while the weird continues to fight the Jason inside. Batman says that they need to get inside that cube and find out what's going on in there. In there, the Jason captures the weird inside a particle beam encasement bubble? Now I can conjure up the portal between your world and mine. The Macrolats want to come over and visit with their escaped slave. The weird accuses him of betraying the entire human race, at which point the Jason tells the captive weird his origin story. I'm doing this because life sucks. Growing up, Jason believed himself to be special, owing to his having been named after the famed leader of the Argonauts. But Jason's life was, in fact, quite terrible. His father committed suicide when Jason was four, Jason discovering the body. After that, Mom crawled into a bottle and was never the same again. The alcohol abuse twists his once loving mother into an abusive woman. Eventually, one of her gentleman friends killed her by taking a razor to her. Again, Jason found the body. The orphanage wasn't too bad, as Jason learned to fight, to be strong, to be hard. He showed no interest in schoolwork and was kicked out at 15 over a little trouble I got into with a girl. Menial job followed menial job, but he kept getting fired. The jerks I worked for couldn't see how special I was. He fell into homelessness, the worst part of which was the dirt. The broads don't go for dirty men. They like them clean. An employment office gets him a sanitation job, but he just resents it. More dirt, more smells. Somehow, time slipped away from me, he says, and five years pass. His problems with women continue until he explodes at one who responded to his advances with an insult, bashing her head in with a trash can lid. A lifetime of pent-up anger took control of me. He was pulled off of her before he could finish the tramp, so he only spent six months in prison. During that time, he decided he's only special because, unlike others, he cares only for himself. Back on the garbage truck, he waited for Destiny's siren call, and then one night, the dreams started. I was the one they'd been looking for. I was the someone special they needed. He studied for weeks under the Macrolats, growing in skill and power. It was like a fantasy come true. You fool, the weird tells him. You will be the first person the Macrolats destroy. They will not tolerate anyone whose power rivals theirs. But the Jason is not in a mood to listen. He has a trans-dimensional bridge to build. Outside, the mighty John Johns throws himself against the force shield. But even his incredible strength can't put a dent in it. Batman has a sinking feeling that they're all running out of time. Inside, the weird continues to try to reason with the Jason, but his logic and his pleas are falling on deaf ears. The weird has grown to love this world, its beauty, its freedom. He realizes that it was worth more than his own life and makes a dramatic decision. 
he overloads his molecular structure, knowing Jason's force cube will contain most of the blast. He and Jason would both be killed, along with the entirety of Metropolis, but the rest of the Earth would be saved from the Macrolat invasion. May whatever gods there might be, forgive me. But before the weird can perform this dramatic act, a pair of Macrolat energy beings escape through the portal, shooting into Metropolis. The weird, freed in the commotion, sends a low-grade disruptive charge right into Jason's cerebral cortex. As long as the Jason lives, there will be a chance that he will allow more Macrolats into this realm of reality. This cannot be permitted, he tells the unconscious Jason, as he, with a face filled with grief, snaps Jason's neck. As he dies, the Force Cube falls and the Justice League swoops in. What they find is the weird standing over the corpse of the human Jason Morgan. The League is pretty darn frustrated at this point, and they are not in a mood to listen to an explanation. Martian Manhunter uses his power of invisibility to surprise and then disable the weird. Batman wants Guy Gardner to escort him off the planet immediately. But, do you remember those two macrolat balls of energy I mentioned a minute or two back? Well, those two macrolats have returned, having taken possession of the bodies of Nuclon from Infinity Inc. and Superman. We'll take care of the weird. Next issue. Armageddon. The cover of issue four, again by Bernie Wrightson, is again beautiful in its simplicity. In the background and silhouette are Batman and a few of the JLAers. They are staring at the weird, who is floating in the air, arms outstretched, energy pulsing from his hands. The only words are pretty small despite the power of those words. The explosive finale. The story, Armageddon, was produced again by the creative team of Starlin, Wrightson, and Green. We start with the Batman doing his best to wake up the weird. He wants to know what's going on because the League is having their heads handed to them by the macrolat-possessed Superman and Nuclon. Nobody knows why these heroes are attacking them. The Weird gives Batman a quick recap of the series so far, and Batman admits that maybe they should have worked with him sooner rather than fighting him. At least it's only two of these monsters we have to face, Batman suggests. But the Weird tells him that even two may prove more than all of their combined might can handle. The Macrolats chose these two bodies on purpose, the two most powerful corporeal entities they could find. Even Captain Adam and Dr. Fate can't do any combined damage to Nuclon and Superman. Batman tells the weird that he must join the fight, but he refuses. He knows how powerful these entities are, that they are unstoppable. He has a limited amount of energy and time, and he isn't going to waste it in a fight with an unbeatable enemy. 
Batman tries to apply some of the lessons he's learned from the weird, but nothing can stop the pair. As the two Macrolots finish off the league, the weird kneels before them, bowing to their greatness. The Macrolats respond, Everything Everything must must be be destroyed. destroyed. And they begin to destroy everything. A series of high-rise buildings are set ablaze with people inside. The newsman who's been on the scene for this entire series declares that this is the worst disaster he's ever seen. Several blocks of downtown Metropolis are on fire. We will feed as no other Macrolat has ever fed. We will become more than Macrolats. We will be gods. They draw the flames upward to themselves, absorbing all of the destructive energy they've unleashed. The weird pleads with the Macrolats, offering his aid and proving his loyalty by knocking Batman unconscious. The Macrolats don't appreciate the implication that they need his help, but he explains that human bodies have strange side effects, including something called cancer. The weird eventually offers his own energy to his Macrolat masters, an offer that is too good for them to refuse. But as they approach him, he pulls the Macrolat energy balls out of the bodies. Did you really think I would aid you in turning the plane of reality into the same sick existence I sacrificed everything to escape from? Did you think at all? You're evil incarnate, and there's no price I would not pay to ensure the safety and liberty of this lush green world. He even killed the Jason to protect this realm, and he has no qualms in dealing with them. And he crushes the two energy balls in his hand, destroying the Macrolats, killing the Macrolats. It seems to be over, but Batman points out there's still the matter of the weird's unstable and possibly nuclearly explosive molecular structure. Superman tests him, but finds him still unstable. There's nothing that anyone can do to help him. Dr. Fate, Guy, Captain Adam, nobody can heal him. The weird accepts his approaching death, but asks to be indulged in one final act. He knows he has two days, 48 hours, before he'll die. Off the coast, near Metropolis, he reshapes the seafloor to create the beginnings of an island. With his ability to control his density, the job shouldn't be difficult, but it will be time-consuming. Guy Gardner and Superman keep their eyes on him, making sure he doesn't become dangerously unstable. Eighteen hours later, Superman arrives right on schedule with Billy, and we see the end result of the weird's weird construction project. A life-size ship made of rock on its own little island. There looks to be a spiral staircase built into the structure, winding up to its highest peak. Superman says that they explained everything, but Billy's mother didn't want to come. The weird explains to Billy that he has to be far, far away from here when his time comes. They hug and he tells him, Goodbye, son. 
Martian Manhunter, flies Billy home and the boy is a mess of tears and anguish. Superman and Guy Gardner take the weird to an uninhabited sector of space, at least a light year from the nearest inhabited world. This looks like as good a place as any to die. If only there was something we could do, Superman offers. But there's not. In a nice move, Superman tells him, Goodbye, Walter. And Guy wishes him, Good luck, pal. The heroes fly away to a nearby piece of space rock. The weird laments his short life. But it was a good and exciting life. Just a taste of living. It will have to be enough. I'll remember it. Savor it. Goodbye, freedom. Goodbye, life. And as a tear falls from Superman's eye, with Guy looking on disconsolately, the weird explodes. The end. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spaway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not. Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back. Over Labor Day 2016, M and I went to Baltimore Comic Con, and among the people I wanted to meet, wanted to have stuff signed by, was Jim Starlin. My process for deciding which books to take to the con to get signed by whoever was to go through my collection and correlate that with Comic Book DB to help me remember what books I had in my collection by the particular people who were attending the con. What I ended up having signed by Starlin, by the way, was the first book of the Cosmic Odyssey series and a few issues of Iron Man that he actually drew the covers for. So I happened to get in line for Mr. Starlin while he was on a lunch break, so I ended up being something like fifth in line. 
and he was back shortly thereafter, so it was not a long wait at all. And I was only at his table for a few minutes, of course, but he seemed like a nice enough fellow for what that's worth, and I think he appreciated having those Iron Man covers to sign. It was, I think, something a little different. But one strategic mistake I made in determining which books I wanted signed by who was that I just looked at my regular collection, my permanent collection, if you will. I did not look through the books in the Quarterbin database. Totally different Excel spreadsheets. And I wish I had looked through those books. I wish I had thought to bring this series, The Weird. This is a bit of a spoiler, I suppose, but I thought this was an excellent read. And I think maybe if I'd read it right before going to the con, if it was fresh in my mind, I definitely would have brought these with me. I mentioned the sparseness of text on the covers, which was both an excellent design choice from Bernie Wrightson, but I have to credit that it was also an excellent editorial choice. To keep that traditional marketing language and excitement and exclamation points and all of that off of the covers as well, there's a sense that the art is doing all of the work on these covers and the art does all the work. I mean, it, it accomplishes that. Now, the version I have of issue three is a little different from the others. It has the UPC box without the UPC in it. I don't know if that's a subscription or the direct market. I'm not sure what that would mean in 1988. Uh, but this is the box where if it's a Marvel, maybe they put Spidey's head in it. DC will often put messages in theirs. So I've, I've seen the creator's names go in there, for example. But this one, I think, had a very appropriate message for this book. DC Comics aren't just for kids. And I think with the weird, DC Comics proved that point. And remember, this is the era when DC, I think, is really flexing their muscles. It's the early days of the post-crisis world. Superman had been rebooted by John Byrne a few years before. Frank Miller's Dark Knight came out that same year. Watchmen has happened at this point. Wonder Woman had just gotten her George Perez reboot in 87. The Killing Joke came out the same year as The Weird in 1988. There's some real creativity happening here. Boundaries being pushed. Efforts to produce legitimately actual, mature stories. The Weird does not carry the Suggested for Mature Audiences label, to be clear, and it was approved by the Comics Code Authority. It doesn't have any of the classic inappropriate material. No sex, no bad language. Some violence, but no blood or gore. But what it does have is intensity. Depth. Seriousness. Emotions. Consequences. Substance. It has, it has substance. It has true maturity. For context, the Vertigo line, and more about them shortly, is still a few years off. But I do think that efforts like The Weird paved the way for moves like that. And and for titles like those that would eventually make up that line. Jason's story here is dark, relentlessly grim. And a lot of things are touched on in his story. The plight of the homeless process of the cycle of family violence. Now, he very specifically makes his own choices, but there's always the sense that there was a 
a sad destiny leading him to where he ended up. And one of the great advantages of writing a true miniseries, a story with an actual ending, with a lead character that doesn't have to continue onward, is that you can have a character with mixed motives, with gray morality. A character who can do things that your ongoing heroes, the ones who are on lunchboxes and wallpapers and cell phone cases, can't do. Let's be honest, we're talking about a character who can kill to solve a problem. And Starlin does a great job showing us just how bad the Macrolats are here in these issues. In the first two, we'd been told how bad they are. But here, we see them just devastate a portion of Metropolis just to, just to show they can, and that they will, and that they want to. We've thought about this over the last few years regarding Superman and the Man of Steel movie. But wherever you come down on that issue, the level of controversy, the loudness of the controversy, does reveal that that action is not the kind generally expected of a superhero. But the weird has the great advantage of not being a traditional superhero. And this non-traditional status allows him to make a hard choice without the consequences or controversy that would follow him if he were an ongoing character, certainly an ongoing hero. But Starlin makes clear at the end that this is not an ongoing character. And up to his death, it's only been 130, 140 pages of the weird. We haven't known him all that long. But in those final scenes, the, the final scenes both on Earth and in space, those are nonetheless quite gripping. And he explodes really good. I guess if Starlin or DC wanted to bring him back for some incontinuity reason, they could come up with a way. In DC Rebirth, I guess they could certainly come up with a way. But like I said, he exploded real good. He is done. In issue two, we saw the weird give Billy, his son, so to speak, a chance to have one last talk with his dad. And here he gives him the opportunity to say goodbye. Perhaps give him a chance at some closure. And that's a really touching scene. And like the final scene in outer space, a lot of that responsibility is borne by Wrightson. There's not a ton of dialogue these last six or eight pages as the the denouement is happening, as the, the series is winding down. And I should specifically mention the last page Because it's just a single image of that boat island that the weird built against the setting sun. Again, no dialogue or no captions. It's just a beautiful image. And I guess it's a fitting end to the story. I don't exactly know what to make of that image, what to make of that construction. But it seems kind of triumphant. seems glorious. But certainly there's a fair share of melancholy happening as well couple little points before I wrap up. Follow up from last episode. The Weird's color scheme does seem to settle in more the red-scarlet side of the equation as opposed to the more purpley hue that was happening in the first issue. Also, I've become accustomed to, to stories like these, miniseries, issues like these, to have notes from the creators at the end, or essays from the editor, something talking about 
how this comet came to be, who pitched the idea, how the team got assembled, what the process was, that sort of stuff. And I'll be honest, I really miss that, that sort of, I call them the, the DVD extras that you often get in a mini. Of course, the stories had no ads. They were just 38 pages each of story. So I can't easily say where you would have put those columns, put those essays. You can always cut a house out, I guess. But So I did miss not hearing from Starlin or Wrightson or whoever their thoughts on the series, the characters, the story. But in the long run, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. That's a pretty minor quibble. One other morose thing I need to mention, because it was a constant thought for me as I read this. Guy Gardner is pretty much in every issue. and has a couple of important moments throughout, most of all at the end, when it's just him and Superman and the weird. And then it's just him and Superman. And any time I run across a story which Guy Gardner has a presence... I think of my podcasting buddy and great all-around fella, the late Sean Engel. I really would have loved to have gotten his view, his take, on how Guy was portrayed in this series. But no. And that's a real shame. The verdict on the weird number three and four, what Starlin and Wrightson managed to do here is impressive. They told an old-school, hard sci-fi tale, but put it squarely in the mainstream DCU. They gave us a lot of characters we know, a world we know, but then went ahead and told an abstract, bizarre, cryptic, hard-to-describe story. And it worked. It, It more than worked. It was really, really good. And of course, 38 pages each, you get quality and quantity. This whole series, definite quarter bin steals. And thanks again to everyone who participated in the voting, and more specifically thanks to everyone who voted for the weird. Good call. I mean, Moon Knight's still pretty upset, but, but, good call. That wraps up my coverage of the weird, number three and four, bringing episode 92 of the quarter bin to a close. Which brings us to a discussion of what we'll be doing here on the podcast over the next number of months, actually. For a while now, I've had an idea for a series of episodes based on some of the great titles I found in the cheat bins. I don't know if these are great issues, but I have found issues of very well thought of titles. I found issues of Sandman for a quarter, for example, and one of my favorites, 100 Bullets an issue of Unwritten, a series I really dig. And then when I found some issues of Fables, cheap, when the new half price books opened up nearby, I knew that this had to happen. But as I was going through the possible books to cover for that series, I realized that many of them had something in common, and that I had other books in the Quarterbin database that fit that new criterion. And so, stealing a phrase from Emily... Next episode, we'll take a leap into the Vertigo Vortex. And I'm planning at this point for us to be in there up until the free comic book day episode, which should be episode 98. That'll take us back 
to Doom 2099 for episode 99. And then we'll spend most of the summer on episode 100. But more about that down the road. Don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So let me just say, in next episode, episode 93, we'll be looking at Animal Man 61 and 63 from the Vertigo imprint of DC Comics, cover dated July and September 1993. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.